For all of you who listen to Submersion and own an Android device, go to the Google Play Store and download the Podcast Republic app. It's a fantastic app that allows you to get all of your favorite podcasts directly on your Android device. I personally use the app and I love it. I can search for the podcast I want to listen to, select it as a favorite, and have it just a click away. Make sure to select Submersion as a favorite so you don't miss any of our new episodes. Again, the app is the Podcast Republic app, available on Android devices. At Mac East Studios, we recognize there are more forms of media for submarines than just movies and television, which is why we're diving deeper into the world of submarine gaming. Game on. Welcome to a special episode of Submersion. Uh, we normally we haven't done any of these yet, but today we are going to be discussing a submarine-based game because there are a surprising amount of them out there. We're going to cover some. This is the first one that we're doing, and we actually have a, an incredible interview with the creator of the game, Commander Andy Benford. He will be on later. Uh, and that's the majority of what this episode is. But before we get into that, Jamie and I wanted to talk about the game because we had the opportunity to play this game the other week at a board game night at my house. And we just wanted to let you know how it plays, how it feels, everything, you know, first impressions of what this thing is. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you, you got this kind of, did you get it special or you just went out and bought it, right? I just went out and bought it. Uh, you can find this on Amazon, and I should probably let people know. The game we were talking about is They Come Unseen. Mm. It's published by Osprey Games, Osprey Publishing, and it's available on their website for about $50 on Amazon. When I bought it, it was around 25 So you can find it, in, but there's not a lot left. I think I checked. I think there's only two copies left hmm. on there. So I don't know. If you're interested in it, I jump on it and or you can get it directly from Osprey Publishing. Yeah. And and this is I mean, I'm not like a huge board game guy. I don't I don't play like a huge number of them. I have played particularly a number of years ago. I used to play a lot of these strategy kind of board games that are out there. And so when we were going into um Starting it, uh, it was a little daunting, <laughs> I would say. There's a there's all, all these games, all these board games, kind of when their strategy have like a lot of rules that go with them. So you feel like you have to study, study, study. I do. I actually feel like once you're in it, once you're actually in and playing the game, it comes pretty quickly. Um, what actually is going like? Like originally they had this whole weather aspect to the to this one. Um, that originally I was like, God, we're, we're never going to get to the point where we can do that. I think if we played it a second time, I would be like, let's do the weather. Um, right. Yes. I think only the second we've time got, we've got our legs under us enough. Yeah. And from talking with uh, Commander Benford, it's actually very, it's very cool because I found out there were some things that we were doing while we were playing that we were doing incorrectly. Oh, really? Yeah. And we can talk about that in well, a little bit. Um, yeah, but, I, would, um, I would love to talk about that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> try, to, try to figure, <laughs> try to figure out what we're doing because that that always happens with board games, even simple ones. Like I remember growing up and and playing like Monopoly and stuff, and not realizing for years and years that you kind of misinterpreted a rule that actually um, was in the game. Um, but part of board, was, part of board games is kind of having that little bit of flexibility 
to be able to play it the the way you feel like it's most natural as well. But right. I speaking of Monopoly, one of the rules I always misinterpreted is for whatever reason, we always used to put any money that was collected like from the tax or whatever underneath free parking and if you landed on free parking, we gave you the money. Right. That's not a thing. I don't Yeah, exactly. People people always do slightly slightly modified rules and stuff like that. So, that's not surprising that first time through we were kind of doing something a, a little bit different than than what it was. Um the cool thing one cool thing that I really like just from the get-go of kind of the setup of the game is is it's a two well, I guess it can be a 1 versus 1 and a 2 versus 2, right? That's kind of how it goes. And it can also be 2 versus 3. And 2 versus Three, interesting. Oh, yes. I guess the th- so the, we should we yeah. should kind of probably give an overview of what's even sure. going on. Yeah, exactly. In the game. Do you want to talk about it? Sure. I mean, it's it's supposed to be NATO. Um, NATO submarines basically get a a sense that the Soviet Union has um, some secret bases up in the uh, which one was it? Was it the Barents Sea? The Barents Sea. Yeah, and uh, they're going to go up there and. They come on scene, so they're they're going to sneak in. The nano submarines are going to sneak in and try to um, kind of secretly disable the um, bases that base that they have up there. But you can't be um, you can't like directly destroy their ships and stuff uh, because it would cause like an international incident. Conversely, the Soviet Union they can they they obviously will know potentially that there are some submarines around trying to do this. They can destroy the submarines because, as it says in the rules, like what happens with submarines, accidents happen all the time, kind of, and they wouldn't be able to kind of say, the NATO wouldn't be able to come out and say like, oh, you destroyed our submarines because they weren't supposed to be there in the first place. Um, right, kind of yeah, they were They were definitely within uh, some hostile waters. Right. They, should not, have, so they should not have been there. It's a little bit of a game of cat and mouse. The Soviet Union knows these submarines out there. They know that they want to destroy a certain number of bases up in this area in the Barents Sea. And so those ships are trying to find these submarines uh, based on, you know, where they're destroying things and where they potentially float to the surface if they run out of fuel and, and different things like that. And then they go after and destroy them while, while the submarines are trying to kind of zip around and trick the, trick the ships so they won't be able to anticipate where they're going to be and they can destroy all, four, all the bases that they need to destroy um, before getting killed. That's more and, they, and the submarines are running on battery power, and every time you move a square, on it's a big grid, every time you move on a square, you have to burn a unit of battery power, and you only start with 20, and to recharge your batteries, you can do a thing called snorting, which is specially, uh, uh, specifically... What's the word I'm even looking for here, Jamie? It's when you go up yeah, you to periscope, periscope depth, depth. There we go. and you will snorkel... Or snort. Uh, Andy and Brahm and I talked about, I guess there is a you know, difference in terminology. Uh, so snorkeling is the same as snorting for all you U.S. listeners. Mm-hmm. And you can recharge your batteries that way. And this is where we screwed up. Every time you snort, we're supposed to put or basically make our location known. Really? Yes. That's interesting. That is an interesting aspect. So that was how we originally thought it was going to play, right? Yes. That when you snore, that the ships would would see them. Wow. That actually makes it really hard for the submarines. But I guess the idea is that you can actually run for a while and your batteries 
Um, and you, you normally can, do this every and, once in a while. Yeah, it makes it. And I when think the it, weather comes into play, yeah, you can true. hide with yeah. the weather. So okay, so that, that, that kind of makes the weather much factor. more yeah, much more necessary because we kind of scrapped the weather for this first pass through because we felt like well, okay, even this is a says, layer on top of it. It even says in the um, user manual, but your first couple playthroughs do not try to incorporate the weather right. because there's so many there's so many nuances to the game going on that it could really overwhelm you or confuse you so yeah we went with that approach because it was you me and then two other people who had not i think i meant they're not like super into sub stuff like we are so right. like okay although one of them into this with these guys one of them did mention he wants me to set up a game night and to play the game again yes he did yeah so i will so at some point we'll be i'll probably try to do it over at one of the breweries in town and uh and you know see if anyone wants to come out and play the game while drinking some beers oh but, yeah, yeah he, he enjoyed it enough to be like let's do it again um because well, now, I, he, especially now yeah. that we know it exactly like, oh, okay yeah. now we really can get into this because when we were playing almost immediately you were playing as the nato submarines i was playing uh, on the soviet side of things and almost immediately right. you guys kind of botched it let's just say yeah it that we way. screwed up because yeah. Uh, we were in an area where you're only allowed to move six squares and we were immediately like, Ooh, I guess let's try to go 14 squares. And, and not only and, that, but, but yeah. you, it, it wasn't clear exactly just the nature of the game of this cat and mouse game where it's really, really important that you're trying to trick the Soviet side when you're the submarines and not right. make it clear, not make it, um, and them to be able to anticipate where you're going to be. And you guys basically went directly where we had assumed you might try to go. And, right. uh, and we were able to detect you pretty quickly. Um, and so it would be really important in the game to try to keep your position unknown as much as possible. And you guys kind of didn't move in that way. Now, knowing that, I think once I realized that and we started playing that way, I was like, whoa, this game's really cool. Because it's two gets two, but it's a mind game with all of this where you, you the whole time you have to be thinking well where are they going to think i'm going where where is the best way to do this maybe even just laying low for a while because if you can lay low for long enough then you might be able to get them to go get the the destroyers and stuff to go far enough away that you can quickly zip over and, and do some damage uh without then being then having enough room to make your next step and stuff like that so it's pretty cool right and you could also you could sit back because you also as a submarine you can lay mines that's yeah. something we oh we didn't, didn't do mention. that either yeah, yeah and you can do that in shallow waters and you start out as a submarine in shallower waters so then i immediately thought after after we'd been going i thought yeah. oh man what if we what if the subs pushed out a little bit laid mines went back so that no matter what, if the ships are getting near them, they're going to hit the mines and then the ships are damaged. I thought this, this could work. And if, yeah, and that'd be also a good way. there's a, uh, yeah. that'd be a good way. Cause if some of the bases that the, the subs are trying to destroy are in shallow water, it'd be a good way to be able to do that and still get away with it. Cause one of the things we thought was, Oh man, destroying these bases in shallow water seems really dangerous. Cause once a base is destroyed, obviously the destroyers will know that the submarines in that area so it's another mm -hmm. way that they they can be detected and uh like oh you have to be really tricky with that so mines would be a good way to make it uh not necessarily super um easy to then go straight in that direction without having some damage to your ships and stuff like that 
True. Um, so yeah, just there's, there's a lot going on with this kind of like cat and mouse that was just really cool the more I thought about it. Um, is there anything that you wish it kind of um, ha- had or that you thought was uh, you were less keen on with the gameplay? Not really. I mean, after playing it, I really actually, I really enjoyed this game. I, the only thing, we kind of talked about it a little bit. We'll talk about it in the interview is potential expansion stuff. That's exactly, that's what I was going to say. And that's what was kind of prompting. Like, I do feel like you have this one map and you can get a lot of, I think because it's a cat and mouse, especially if you're playing with the same people multiple times, um, you can get a good feel of like people's personalities, which I'm sure is something that like back in the Cold War when submarine captains kind of knew each other a little bit. They'd be like, oh, I know this. <laughs> I, I kind of know this submarine. I know what the submarine's mm-hmm. going to do. Uh, you get a se- sense of what they're doing, and it would be nice to have like a second map or a different map or an expansion of some sort where that would kind of throw do a, do a little bit of a monkey wrench, and all of a sudden it'd be like a whole new game just by changing a little bit of the map. Yes. And, but I mean, also, with this one map, I do think there is a lot of replay value. Oh, sure. Uh, just Especially with different people. I mean, that's the thing. A lot of true. a lot of people's personalities are going to go into how they're going to be moving these submarines and the destroyers and stuff. And so any different people that you're playing with are going to play differently. So the game will play differently. And it's just, I guess, people's own creative uh, minds to say, okay, what... Uh, we tried this last time. This didn't work. All right, right. Now, what can we what can we work with together? It's like my, it's like also, my beautiful it's, mind. Like when I have my beautiful mind going, you guys had no chance. Let's be real about it. Ah, uh, dude. That's well, why they there call was some me. Time. That's why they call me the ointment. There was an island that I remember. You guys thought I'd potentially skirt it around, and I think at that point I was directly underneath you. Wow. <laughs> I was like, oh, oh that's, yes. Yeah, yeah. That's right. We didn't know where you'd went. Yeah. But our beautiful mind, our beautiful mind figured it out. mm Hmm. Yeah, man. So uh, we're just doing this super quick, uh, but overall, first impressions, and I guess, I mean, we kind of got impressions, and what would you rate this game out of, we'll do our normal rating scale, so up to 10, but hey, if it's above and beyond, the footlong is always there. I, I'm i going to go like a full-blown nine, because as I said, I'm not a huge uh, board game guy. And there's certain board games that I don't love. Like, um, you had talked at some point about the thing board game, right? John Carpenter's a thing. So my brother had that one. And in that one, one of the players starts as being the thing. And so you're, you're supposed to be like sabotaging and doing it clandestinely. And, uh, I don't like that kind of stuff when it's like one person versus a bunch of people. Um, right. Or, or yeah, where like a bunch of people going, cause like, I don't know. It kind of makes the gameplay, uh, it's tough. It's tough for the one person because it's kind of a lot of pressure for the game to be good. That player has to be really invested in wanting to play that role. But when it's random, it's tough to do that. Here, it's a little more balanced where you do have these two sides. And either side would be very interesting to try to do, either trying to avoid the destroyers or trying to find the submarines. It's two sides of a very interesting coin. And it's teamwork. So you're, you're usually, I mean, in our case, we are working with someone and working against a team. And that kind of discussion and strategy, um, I really enjoyed. So I don't know, like I, I, I found it better than kind of most of other ones we did. I do, I do, I do similarly like games, almost like escape rooms where it's a team trying to get a goal. Like those are probably mm-hmm. my favorite, but this was very good as well. I do like this team versus team 
kind of stuff. It gets you invested in it with the other person as you discuss strategy and try to figure out how best to do it. So I'm going to go a nine with a little wiggle room there for the expansions and um, little wrinkles and stuff like that. Um, also, I guess, you know, there is there is a lot of rules, um, but um, not so much that it's like super crazy, um, but enough where you can feel like the starting up of of playing the game can feel very daunting. Um, and you kind of have to just dive right in, uh, or else you might, you know, look at it and be like, oh, just look at this. I have to figure all this stuff out. It's pretty simple if you just do it though. True. And, um, I'll, I'll jump in here. I, uh, agree with you. I really hope that potentially down the road, we do get an expansion map or something along those lines. And I really enjoyed this. I haven't played a whole heck of a lot of, strategy games either myself but i i do play a decent amount of games with my buddies whenever we go down to kentucky and i found myself having an absolute blast playing this just with everything that you've talked about getting to work with another member and you're working directly against the other people and especially if you're the sub you can see everything that's going on yeah everything and just uh just to watch you guys on the soviet side try to figure out where we're at and you're yeah, moving could pieces be. and we see you move into an area we're like oh man and then you move past and then you do a sonar search we're like oh good they they're not going to get us and i really enjoyed it i can't wait till we start using the weather element and i'm going to go ahead and give this thing a 9.5 oh at a really really good time playing it it's an absolute blast and it may not be one that people uh, I mean, you're probably not going to see this in like a department store or anything like that, but it's definitely one that I think is worth searching out. Yeah. Uh, are you sure you aren't, you aren't, didn't have such a good time because of the VHS that was playing while we were playing or what? That's no, true. In the background, we did have Sports Illustrated Football Follies from what was it, like 1989 or something like something that? Something like that. And it was one of the worst things I've ever seen because I got it that was, for five cents. It was so funny because they were, uh, it was like, and look at these bonehead plays. And it was like tackles and missed catches that you see every week during, <laughs> during a regular season. <laughs> they just kind of collected these stupid clips together that probably they just looked at a, a, a collection of like 20 games and were like, what'd you get? Well, well, this is what we got. And it was some of the lamest stuff I've ever, none of them were even that interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It was real weird. And then there was this host who was all weird as well. Anyways, but that's, that's neither here nor there. But that there. has nothing to do with they come unseen. I think it's, but it's, it, I will say it's probably a benefit that we were able to watch Football Follies while we did it. Not so confusing that we couldn't have a little Football Follies in the background. That is true. Good call. And also with the rules, uh, I did, I went, I read through them a few times just because I wanted to get a full understanding and then go back and like, read it again and say, okay, you know, here's this piece and this piece. And I think if you do that, it's really beneficial. Yeah. Even just, even the one playthrough, like now thinking about when I first started reading the rules, I was kind of like, oof, like my brain was almost like rebelling, but that, because it's reading rules, right? Reading rules is no one likes to do it. Uh, but once you, once the one playthrough, now I feel like everything seems so logical as I read the rules that it's mm -hmm. like, oh yeah. No, yeah, that all makes sense. And it'd be, I, incorporating the weather would be super easy, when, when, you know, even just playing it once. Right. Yeah. And even if you go online, uh, Andy has created a website, theycomeunseen.com, and there is a, uh, there's a supplemental sheet to help with movements 
especially uh, during the weather and all that. And it's really beneficial. I'd recommend checking that out. And be sure to stick around and listen to our whole interview with Commander Andy Benford at Mac E Studios. Sometimes we don't have all the answers. In dire times like this, we've decided to call in the very best. Welcome to an interview with an expert. Dear listener, Andy Benford speaking, designer of the board game They Come Unseen. During this podcast, I mentioned Cape Horn, when I should actually have said the Cape of Good Hope. I knew where we were, but used the wrong name and then repeated it. A very annoying slip of the tongue that I realised far too late. So, for the record, and in the interest of accuracy, when you hear Cape Horn, please think the Cape of Good Hope. Thank you. All right, so welcome to a special episode of Submersion. We will be doing a few gaming reviews, and today we have on the creator of the pretty incredible board game, They Come Unseen. Commander Andy Benford is joining us all the way from the UK. Thank you for being on today. Yeah, pleasure. Um, Thanks for the invitation. Just before we get started, you have a very illustrious uh, career would you and uh, background? Would you like to talk about that a little bit and let people know who you are? Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, I'm not sure about illustrious. It wasn't bad, but uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I I joined the Royal Navy in 1968, straight from school, and went to the Britannia Royal Naval College in Dartmouth. It's the equivalent of uh, the Annapolis in the states, and uh, I did a year there learning to be um, a sailor rather than in a schoolboy. Um, and then after two terms, it was still terms, but crazy terms, because they got you up at a sort of five in the morning for early morning activities, and they make you run up and down the hill and do all sorts. Then you'd go and have breakfast, then you'd have after-breakfast activities, and then you'd do a full day's tuition, and then they'd run you ragged in the evenings as well. Um, so you did that for two terms, and they were just basically drilling into you that you're now in the Navy, it's a disciplined service, you can't do what you like. Uh, then I went <laughs> off to, to sea for three months in a frigate, HMS Tenby, to get sea legs. Um, and then I was, that, so I started off as an officer cadet, promoted to midshipman, automatic, you know, although you could get thrown out as an officer cadet. And um, I did a year as a midshipman, first part in uh, HMS Bulwark, an amphibious carrier, um, operating in the Mediterranean mainly. And then we went round uh, Cape Horn and out to the Far East. And I'll just add here sort of how I ended up in submarines, if I may, if I sort of backtrack. So we were going around Cape Horn, but let me just backtrack. Um, I decided on a submarine career... I think because firstly, my brother, I've got a brother who's three years older, Tim, actually he's an American citizen now, lives in Dayton, Ohio. What? No kidding. <laughs> that's right near where Brom lives. That's very, very close to me. I mean, that's a stone's throw from that guy. Yeah, I don't want to give away my, my hometown here, though. I, I mention it every now and again on the podcast, but that is, yeah, as as Kyle used the idiom there, a stone's throw away, that is definitely accurate. Okay, <laughs> 
Well, yeah, so uh, my brother Tim, three years older, and uh, he wanted to fly, and he wanted to fly in the Royal Air Force. And so he went through the selection process at the age of 16. And I was 13 then, and that's an impressionable age. You know, I'd gone through being, wanting to be a policeman and probably wanting to drive trains, I don't know. And uh, there we were, my brother going to the Royal Air Force, and I thought, okay, that sounds pretty good. I don't think I was, I didn't feel academically strong. <laughs> um, so I'd, I'd never thought of going to university. Um, and so I then thought service career. For family holidays, we used to go to a lovely place that's still there, Solcombe in Devon, on boating holidays. So I thought, okay, brother's going into the Air Force. My father was in the Royal Artillery in the Second World War. I don't want to be in the same service as those two. I like it on boats. Let's go into the Navy. So I investigated that. And then at 1963, so I'd have been 13, I think it was around then, um, I saw a, a, color pay, a double page spread and a colour supplement. A colour supplement over here is a, a glossy magazine that sits inside a newspaper. Okay. And the, that double page spread had a very murky f uh, picture of a submarine. I think it was HMS Dreadnought because she was coming out about then. And that sort of hooked me on uh, on submarines. So I joined up to be a submariner, and there we were going around Cape Horn as a midshipman in uh, HMS Bullock. And my my orders, if you like, for the second half of my midshipman year came in, and they were to go to the 7th Submarine Squadron in Singapore. But by this stage, because I was an impressionable, impressionable young lad still, um, I'd had a great time in Bullock. I'd been up in helicopters, flying low level over Cyprus with the Royal Marines and doing all that sort of stuff. And I quite liked carriers. And I can remember going along to our training officer, who actually was a Samaran himself, um, and saying, look, I've, I've, yeah, I'm not sure about submarines anymore. And he said, well, hard luck, Benford. <laughs> it's, ri <laughs> it's written down on your way. And th thank heavens he did, because I then got out to uh, Singapore and I spent six months um, with the 7th Submarine Squadron of Singapore. Um, part of that on board HMS Finwall, a porpoise-class submarine. And it was just terrific, fantastic uh, officers, and such a difference to the big ship routine of the surface Navy. Uh, it's, you know, and that, that hooked me. Um, so we'd better skip forward a bit. So I go back to Dartmouth, a bit more training, become a sub-lieutenant. And then I went on um, a training class, uh, for submarines at HMS Dolphin in Portsmouth. And I joined my first submarine as a proper trainee, Submariner, in 72, and that was HMS Grampus. Now, I know, Ben, you mentioned that in uh, in the photograph. You could see that uh, crest on my study wall. Mm -hmm. And then you progress through um, doing the different jobs. It's interesting, when you, you join a submarine, you don't immediately think, well, I didn't anyway, and I don't think I'm abnormal. Um hey, I'm going to be a submarine captain one day. You just sort of go to your first job. You know, you, you, you go as the casing officer, then the torpedo officer, then you become the sonar officer, and then you become the navigating officer. And I did navigating officer twice in two boats. And you sort of progress up through, and then at the blue, somebody says, hey, you've been selected for perisher. And uh, that's sort of how it happens. I mean, yeah, towards the end of that um, build-up, I suppose, yeah, I did have my eye on Perisher because that's what you want to do. And for people who don't know that, that's the um, Royal Navy Submarine Commanding Officers Qualifying Course. Call Perisher, 
because not everybody passes and they perish. <laughs> a fitting name. <laughs> yes. What, what, when you say that, that you either, you either succeed or you perish, what does that entail? What, what do you do uh, for that qualifying course? Well, it, it takes about six months. Uh, you start off in simulators ashore, and basically you're having to prove to the, the officers. There are two officers who run the course, and they're known colloquially as teacher. And mm -hmm. the, the course is split into two halves. There's usually about four officers on each one, each half, and you train separately with your teacher. And uh, you're in the, the attack trainers ashore, getting used to using the periscope, keeping the boat safe, doing what you had seen your captain do but never really did yourself. And then you go to sea um, off uh, up in Scotland, off uh, the Isle of Arran, for four weeks. I think it was four weeks. It's a while ago now, guys. Um, I think it was four weeks. And you start off, and that's the real world then. So you have one submarine, well, two submarines, the two halves of the course, one sort of down by the south tip of uh, the Isle of Arran and one by the north. And then for the first week, you have a, a frigate charging up and down, uh, trying to send you deep and cause you lots of uh, mayhem. And you're on board the submarine, you're a duty captain, and you get your turn to carry an attack to keep the boat safe. And teacher's monitoring you on the, the other periscope, and if you get it wrong, he'll take control. And basically, you've got to stop getting it wrong. So that's week one. Then week two... They up it to two ships, week three, three ships. And week four, you had three escorts and then a, a tanker. So they would have an escort um, of three frigates coming towards you, and you'd have to keep those safe. By safe, I mean looking through the periscope for as little time as possible to make sure that the submarine was safe, because ultimately that's the primary responsibility is to keep your boat safe. And if, you, if they came too close, you had to go deep. But basically, what you'd really want to do is keep them safe, duck under them, because one would always charge down the middle, come up the other side, attack the tanker. And at any point in that, to answer, going back to answer your question, at any point in that, teacher could say, OK, you haven't got it. Sorry, it's just under the, in the pressure cooker of perisher, you, you, you haven't got what it takes. And on my half the course, there was one guy that happened to, and as soon as it's uh, flagged up, you know it's happening because the, the, the captain of the submarine says, right, I have the submarine, stand by the surface. Teacher goes off to the wardroom to get his uniform and cap. And the student, I think, knows. And he gets uh, uh, interviewed by a teacher. The boat hits the surface, helicopter on top or a boat alongside, and off he goes. That's it, bang. And once that happens, that's the end of your submarine career. Huh. So it's more of a theoretical uh, perishing, I guess you could say. Oh, yes. You, 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 they, everyone that I've known of who's failed perisher has gone on to have a successful career, but they, it's mm -hmm. in, the, in the surface Navy. It just had such an imposing name. It sounded like uh, the stakes were dire that you could uh, die on, on the mission. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how I interpret it, just by the, by the name there. But uh, re regardless, it still sounds like that was probably one of the more nerve-wracking uh, periods of your career, would you say? Well, it's certainly very intense, but it, it's preparation um, for what comes after. And so that's that five weeks at sea. And then you go back into the trainers. And now that you've sort of proven to the teacher that you can keep your submarine safe, you then go into more operational things like doing mine lays, periscope reconnaissance, 
and you'll be trying to do a mine lay in against uh, the Isle of Arran somewhere, and teacher will be on the the after periscope. He'll have the wireless mast up so this ship can see you. He'll be talking to the this ship, saying, "Okay, come over here and give my student a hard time." So they really are, you know, putting you under uh, stress and strain, and uh, you do that, and then yeah, at the end of that. Hopefully you get a handshake and a glass of champagne from teacher, which I did back in 1980. Oh, very neat. That is very cool. We've, uh, we have not heard really a, a process like that. So it's very cool to see that side and what all it takes. It's, uh, I didn't know. I mean, you guys played that many, would you call it war games type scenarios? Well, it, it's, it's, it's training for, for war. I mean, that's what you're doing. You're, you're honing your skills against the surface navy as a submariner and the surface navy are honing their skills against you as a submarine yeah so that that's uh, important and then after that sorry there was something i was going to say but it's completely blown uh, gone out of my mind so maybe it'll come back yeah so so after perisher you then wait for your command and Back those days, because we still had diesel submarines, the conventional submarines, you either went off to be the captain of a diesel electric submarine or you went to be the executive officer of a nuclear submarine. All Royal Navy submarines, nuclear boats, have two command-qualified guys on board. So the captain, clearly command-qualified is the captain, and the executive officer is second-in-command, and he is command-qualified. So they can, the executive officer can help out the captain and if the captain was uh, incapacitated for some reason, you still have a command-qualified guy on board. In the diesel boat days, you just had the one command-qualified guy, the captain. Um, the first lieutenant, who was the, the next guy down, sort of ran the boat on behalf of the captain, the, sort of the, the daily routine, but uh, he wasn't command-qualified. He would be in the penultimate job before, hopefully, going to perisher. So if something happened to the captain on a diesel electric, I mean, LT is kind of, I mean, you're kind of SOL, right? It's going to be, it's going to be really rough because they don't have the experience to command a boat. It, yeah. It all depends. I don't know what SOL is. What's that? Oh, sorry. <laughs> it's, uh, it means shit out of luck. <laughs> okay. <laughs> As you, as you can probably notice, I'm a different generation, so I'm not quite up to speed with these things. No, that's fine. Sorry, that's <laughs> that's that's my bad. Up, up a creek without a paddle. Yeah, that could be a, that could be an American idiom for all we know as well. That is true. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So um, it, 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 that, that officer wouldn't be completely uh, incapable. He he knows what to do in a submarine, and it would depend. I mean, I, I never heard of it happening of a, a, a captain being incapacitated so you just have to treat it at the time as to what they were doing but yes if that did happen in a diesel boat unless it was on a mission that was tricky to uh, just walk away from i think the boat would surface come in and uh, send a signal hey the captain's uh, on his back okay yeah and then so after paris so i, I then went to uh, uh, a submarine operations job so I went instead of underwater I was under concrete um, in a bunker and we, from there we ran submarine operations sending boats out on missions and in fact I was down there for the uh, the Falklands War um, and because I was then I was waiting for my command my command I was chosen to go on exchange to the Royal Australian Navy 
and I went over there and commanded one of their boats, um, which was uh, great fun. Um, There's one exercise I took part. I was very fortunate in Rimpac 84. Rimpac, I'm pretty sure, uh, stands for Rim of the Pacific because the navies involved are from the Rim of the Pacific. So you get New Zealand, Australia, uh, Japan, Canada, the USA. I'm, I, I don't know. I can't remember what other ones uh, involved. And actually, think talking of war games, that's <laughs> I, I hadn't come across it in the Royal Navy, but during RIMPAC, we were I can't, we were the bad guys, I think. And each unit, each ship, submarine, had on board, I think they were called umpires. May have been referee, but I think umpire. And basically, so there I was. I'd be, I did an attack on a, on a carrier, an amphibious craft, somewhere around the Hawaiian Islands. And I got my firing solution. You then say to the umpire, OK, umpire, get in touch with USS, whatever it was. He's course and speed this, range that, we've just fired at him. And so the umpire would go to the uh, wireless shack, the wireless mouse would go up, and he would talk to an umpire on board the carrier. And they would, he would say, look, OK, we've just done this, we've done that. And as far as I understand it, I don't think I'm wrong here, that umpire would then roll some dice on board the carrier, and he'd look at, OK, we've come up with this, and based on what you've told me and so forth, we've uh, received the following damage. And it was pretty cool, actually, because uh, I managed... If they were deemed sunk then they disappeared away from the exercise area for 24 hours before they suddenly uh, were reincarnated as a another ship a little bit like role-playing there yeah so yeah and uh i'm pleased to say that our boat we got through completely unscathed unattacked and dispatched quite a few we got rid of one of the ssn's a carrier um a tanker can't remember the rest yeah, I think I read in a, another interview that you had done that uh, yeah, as you mentioned, you emerged victorious and you got to you got to cruise into Pearl Harbor with the broomstick that you had swept up all your enemies. Is that right? Ah, right. correct. I wonder where I said that before. Yes, <laughs> good research. Very good. <laughs> um, yes, that's pretty cool to roll up into a U.S. naval base, uh, the victor in a war game like that. That's pretty neat. I think. Yeah, yeah, it was good stuff. And then, um, so I, I did my two years there, or just over two years in Australia, and I knew that my appointer, the appointer's the guy who says, okay, this officer's going here, there, and everywhere. And I knew when I came back, I'd be sent to Scotland. Instead of sunshine, I'd be subjected to cold and the wet. And I went up there, and I had a, but it was a good short job. I was one of the guys who went on board submarines to check them out in, in their proficiency to fire torpedoes. And that meant I get, went across to the, the Ortec, the underwater uh, range at the Bahamas that the U.S. has with RN boats, checking them out for uh, weapon firings. And then from there, I went to the executive officer of one of our Polaris boats and uh, did three years as the second in command of the Polaris boat, which then took me to, I then went ashore back into operations <laughs> back under concrete rather than water and that's where i ended up as a commander and then uh in the rank of commander and then they came along the cold war had been won so we're talking about sort of 92 3 and they they being the, the ministry of defense over here went through a process i think it was called options for change they said we've won the cold war 
we've got too many people, we need to save money, who wants to go? And it was quite an attractive package, and so I, I left the Navy in 1993 and then went on to a career in the National Health Service managing doctors. And then, uh, so that's me, really. It's not illustrious. It was an interesting career, but... Uh, <laughs> it's more interesting than my career's been so far, so I'll tell you that. That's, that's really cool. So now, you were on diesel electric and was if i'm not mistaken is the polaris a nuclear powered submarine correct okay and did you have a preference on which one you were at because during rimpack i'm assuming you were on a diesel electric right correct yeah okay and that that's what i've heard is with uh, the united states anyway just because that's where we live and we hear a lot about this type of stuff that they receive a lot of criticism because we don't have any diesel electric boats anymore yeah, and they can run much quieter while they're on their batteries, and the nuclear-powered ones can. Yep. Uh, but did you have a preference as to which one you were on? I imagine the nuclear ones are probably a little more modern, a little roomier, that type of stuff. But just from somebody who's been on both of them, yeah. Uh, well, I know you've been on board the USS Torsk, um, Carl. So I have <laughs> been, and that was that was very close quarters. Yeah. Kyle served on that at a at a museum uh, a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> Actually, the American diesels I think were slightly bigger than ours internally. So if you squeeze that down a bit, you've got our boats. Um, they're, they're, they're very different. Um, sorry, between nuclear and uh, the conventional, which by conventional I mean diesel electric. I think I benefited by my career being starting off in diesel electric. You're you're. <sighs> You're sort of closer to the sea in a way. It, you know, it, they're small boats. You're surrounded by pipes and valves. You really feel part of the environment. Uh, and, I've, and that's just a, a good foundation for a submarine career, I think. The, the operations were different. You got command young. And I, I took parachute as a lieutenant at the age of 30. Now, I was in command as a lieutenant commander, but to drive a nuclear boat, you need to be in the rank of commander or above, we have had one, I think, or maybe more, driven by a captain. Maybe for your listeners, I need to point out, uh, it can be quite confusing. You get a captain of a submarine or a captain of a ship, but that does, that's just a position. They're called captain. It's like somebody who runs a public house is the publican. I don't know if that's a good analogy at all. But uh, So it's, it's just a name. Hey, captain, what are you going to do? But that captain could be any rank. When I was in HMS Finwald as a midshipman in the Far East, my captain was a lieutenant by rank because he'd done okay. he'd done parachute even younger than me. So, yeah, where was I going with that? I've lost my thread. Uh, <laughs> you're talking about uh, being able to um, command a diesel electric at a younger age in a nuclear-powered one. Good. I'm glad that somebody's listening. Excellent. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, so, um, yeah, uh, the commercial boats, you could get command younger, so that's good. And they, I don't know if you've seen any of the photographs on my website, you'll see that, that my, the photographs in the, the diesel boats, I'm wearing a, a white shirt, service shirt, dyed black, because that way it didn't show up the muck, um, the oil and the grease, uh, because you didn't wash anything, you didn't wash yourself, let alone any clothes. Um, whereas in the nuclear boats, you had a laundry and you wore uniform, um, the nuclear boats were more comfortable, but they were just less of a submarine in, in, in a 
stupid way because actually they're more of a submarine because they're completely uh, able to stay submerged for us until the the crew run uh, go mad or run out of food. You know they are the they are a submarine, whereas a conventional boat, a lot of people say, well they're submersible, they can go underwater, but they need to come back up to run the 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 diesels to snort. Um, yeah, so uh, they're different in that regard. Yes, conventionals are much quieter because of the way they run. Uh, but we don't have any diesel boats in the Royal Navy anymore. Um, they are a potent weapon in that they're quiet, but they lack the, 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 the legs to run quickly, run fast and deep, move across the oceans at great speed. And, and, and uh, NATO nuclear boats aren't hugely noisy, but yes, they're always going to be noisier than a, a conventional, a modern conventional so you did mention a term there that uh, got me thinking because the entire reason you're on here is you have come up with an amazing board game and you mentioned the term snort, which is something you have to uh, do quite often when you're running as a submarine and they come unseen. Uh, yeah. Um, yes. Uh, now to many American, well, all Americans who've been in the, the submarine service, they'll say snort. What's he talking about? It's snorkel. Um, and yeah, in other navies, it is called snorkeling. Um, I think it was the, it was either the, I think it was the Dutch who in, invented the, the idea, although the Germans then in the Second World War sort of moved on. But I think the original uh, invention was um, uh, Dutch. Um, and it's always been called snorkeling uh, in those navies. Now, the first boats, I think, in the Royal Navy that uh, had a, a snorkel system, um, I think was they were put into the T-Class. So T-Class were the penultimate boat towards the end of the war. They had the, the T-Class and then the A-Class were the last of the World War II boats. And so they, I think they fitted them in some T-Class and certainly some a, the A-Class had it. And for some reason, in the Royal Navy, it was called snorting, not snorkeling. Now, I don't know if that's because they thought, hey, we don't want to be the same as anybody else. That you could say that's a British trait, um, <laughs> but it's yeah. It's so in in my in my experience, it's always been snorting. So when I devised the game, I thought, okay, well, I didn't have to think about it. That's just what it is, um, right? But, but I have had some some feedback. I can't remember where it was on. Uh, oh yeah, I'd, um, there's a chap called Sam Healy for um, the Dice Tower, who did a very nice review of the game. Uh, only a few months ago now and um, he said about snorting and somebody wrote in the comments on um, either on the dice tower on uh, on youtube actually that's where it appeared and this guy said well if commander benford says snorting he didn't earn his fish so i thought well, that's a bit uh, harsh so i came back to him and actually <laughs> sam healy chipped in quickly said actually that's what the navy royal navy call it and then this guy came back and said, oh, yeah, sorry, apologies. I've just spoken to a couple of guys, and you're quite right. Well, I know I'm quite right. Anyway, there we go. Yeah, so snorting in the Royal Navy, everybody else snorkeling. I think another one was uh, you, you referred to mortars in the game, and uh, we, we kind of see more and more in the movies that we've watched. Obviously, we don't have any real experience on submarines, but we always hear the term depth, depth charges that we're always kind of paying attention to. Yeah, okay. Well, depth charges, absolutely. They're things that were fired off the side or rolled off the, the stern of a ship. 
And the progression in the Royal Navy was to go, they then went to um, a system called Hedgehog, which fired, it, I think it was called Hedgehog because it looked like a, sp a spiny animal with all these sort of little bomblets, which were fire, fired off in a great uh, uh, mass of little, little bomblets to drop on the submarines. And then, then progressed to that. There was another version that I can't remember what it was called. And the one after that, which was the one that I knew when I when I said I was in a, as a cadet at Dartmouth, I went on board HMS Tenby. That was a Type Twelve frigate, an anti-submarine frigate, and they had the limbo system, and that had six tubes, and they fired anti-submarine mortars. Okay. okay. Um, and they were big, I think, thousand-pound projectiles, um, and they were lobbed in patterns at different depths around the submarine and that's exactly what i copied to put into they come and scene you know it is it is not the modern era and they come and scene it's it's sort of based around when i joined up which was the mm -hmm. 60s 70s yeah so yeah anti-submarine mortars it, it does go against uh, what you normally expect but yeah it operated as a depth charge but it was called a mortar and it's a very cool aspect of the game it uh I like how there's so many different variabilities uh, with the with the strategy that you have to use in the game. And uh, just, I mean, we can start getting into the game here real quick. I'll just give a brief overview of it, and then I'll let you run with it, because this is your baby. You know the ins and outs of this entire game. So you start out in the Barents Sea in the Cold War, and you have the Soviets and NATO forces, and the Soviets have ice stations, and uh, which are, you know, potentially missile testing sites that uh, NATO needs to take down. But you can't use outright aggression. So NATO has submarines that go in undetected as they come unseen. And you cannot fire a torpedo because then obviously if a surface ship goes down, everybody knows that something happened. Uh, so you have to sneak into these bases deploy troops, they'll sabotage the entire ice station, destroy it essentially, and then you have to work around, and there's six stations, and you have to destroy four of them based on cards that you draw, and the whole time the Soviets are running their surface ships, and if a submarine goes missing, nobody knows anything about it because it was never there. I mean, that's just, that's just high-level overview, but... I, you know, yeah. <laughs> and if I'm interpreting anything wrong, you go ahead and correct me. Yeah, and Andy, maybe a little bit of background. Obviously, your your life was pretty dominated by your military service, but it also sounds like in your free time, you've always been a board gamer. You've been thinking about uh, They Come Unseen for many years prior to actually making it, correct? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Well, on the board game front, because I was growing up in the 50s, back then... Well, there wasn't much else to do. If, if, if the weather was fine, <laughs> if you weren't at school, obviously you had to go be educated. But when you had playtime, if the weather was fine, we were outdoors, climbing trees, building dens, uh, playing games, uh, you know, ball games, uh, cricket, football, throwing balls at people, TIG, well, lots of those sort of things. Um, but if it rained, there wasn't a fallback. You didn't have your DVD player or your, your iPod or whatever. Television didn't start until five in the evening. In the UK, there were only two channels, and uh, they were black and white. And you know, 
Yeah, we're talking a long time ago here, guys. Um, <laughs> so when uh, when we had a rain day, a very good friend of mine at the time, sadly I'm no longer in touch with him, Nicky Long, he had a, um, a shed in his garden and we would play board games. It was Nicky, I can't remember the other guys, it wasn't just the two of us. And in those days, it, it was Monopoly, Totopoly, which is a, a racing game, um, horse racing type game, Risk, Formula One, a card game called Contraband. Anyway, so yeah, I enjoyed games then. But I've matured. <laughs> uh, you'd, you'd be pleased to hear. Uh, because at, at that age, you, you may have the same experience, but God, risk. Oh, if, if I played risk, you know what it is. If, if, if it's not going well, you can really feel that you're, mm-hmm. being, you're being isolated and, and bullied. You're the only one, and everybody's just hitting you and hitting you and hitting you. And so that was one of the reasons, well, the main reason, actually, why when I decided that I was going to uh, devise my own game, there would be no dice. The other example I've used before is also Cluedo, known as Clue in America. And as you will know, you have to move from different rooms to declare who the murderer is and what they used, you know, in the ballroom with a lead piping. But you had to get to that particular room. You, you knew the answer, but you had to get to the room to announce it. And so you'd know the answer and you'd be about eight squares away and you'd roll one roll one and you'd never get there (laughs) and somebody else got there so in my early days you know dice were really the bane of my life and so in my game there would be no dice when i say i've when i say i've matured that's because now i'm old enough if i play a game if i lose doesn't matter but back then you took it personally so (laughs) it you know it was it was a different way um so yes no dice and uh, for people who pick the game up, they'll find, therefore, that uh, the submarines have a battery gauge and a depth gauge. And as they move, their battery depletes. And in order to get more battery, they have to appear on the main board of two that's seen by everybody, do the snort or the snorkeling move. That gives them some battery back, and then away they go and disappear. In the real world, a snort probably wouldn't be detected. But in order to make the game work, every snort is detected. The destroyers, on the other hand, have a fuel gauge and their salvos for their anti-submarine mortars. And depending on how many squares the destroyers move, they lose fuel. And so nothing in the, the movement of the pieces is based on luck. You just move what you can move using that. And the Soviets... Uh, have a logistic fleet and using the logistic fleet they can get more fuel and more salvos as they go along but the idea for the game so it's back in 1974 and i was the navigator of hms grampus in in my first boat i'd done my part three that's the qualification i'd earned my dolphins i was a qualified samana and i was the navigator and the boat was up in scotland uh, in dock and i was sent south to Portsmouth, which is good because that's where we were living. And I was married at the time, still am, same person, my wife Sue. <laughs> and uh, better had that quickly. Um, and uh, I was sent south to do a submarine navigation course. You might think that's a bit bizarre. You're the navigator and they're sending you on a course. But it, it, all seamen officers have navigational skills. You, it's part of the basic training. But at this point, the Navy, the submarine service, decided to run 
a little submarine navigation course just to add in a few little nuances to to improve your skills. So I was down south um, just doing a sort of nine-to-five day and watching the television one evening, there was a thing on the TV about uh, a chap who was having a board game produced. And I thought, well, that's pretty cool. And uh, the only thing I remember was he said, my tip to anybody is make a game about something you know about. And I thought, I know about submarines. And that's what, and that's that was how it uh, it happened. Mm-hmm. It didn't take long. I sort of threw together the basic idea. I realised if if I didn't want dice, I couldn't have torpedoes because you'd you'd end up with um, probability tables like we had in the Rimpack exercise, and the umpires rolling dice, and that just went against it. So, so I had this basic game, and uh, this was in 1974, and I took it to see. People tried it a bit, played it at home, and it's just sort of followed along through my career. Um, there wasn't a great lot of opportunity for playing it in a, a diesel boat. You don't have much room. As you know, the, the actually published game is a pretty big footprint. Yes, it is. I was amazed because uh, I had, I received it the other week and the box showed up. I thought, wow, this is a pretty darn big box. And, and satisfyingly heavy as well, I feel. Mm-hmm. Yes, it is. It is. It has, uh, you can tell it's got that premium feel when you got one that heavy. It's it's nice. Yeah. But my originals, the uh, the two boards are exactly the same size. They were on bits of A4 paper, but actually you came in a bit in order to draw them. So they were quite small. Um, but I suppose that the, the main time that it, it got played at sea was when I was in the, the SSN Sovereign. Um, I was the Sonrosser there. And it was a great hit. And the, in the uh, the book... The history book that comes with the game. There's a photograph there of my captain playing the game, and I, all I took on board was a, a piece of paper which I'd put a laminate top on to protect it a bit. But it just rolled up, and it got so popular that the captain said, "Right, engineer, we need to have this mounted on a aluminium plate." So it went after the engineers, and they they fashioned an aluminium plate baseboard, put my paper chart on it, got a fashion of perspex top some little brass nuts and it looked the bee's knees and uh, so it was played quite regularly on board in fact in that photograph there are two commanders commander farnfield my captain and i must put here that my biggest regret when putting the game out was i was i fell foul of auto correction when i was type i was passed to osprey games and photographs to support the game to add to the game and i typed out on the computer Photograph one, so-and-so, blah, 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 blah. And include that photograph, Commander Farnfield and Commander Bridgman playing, blah, blah, blah. And I didn't notice, but the, the damn autocorrect changed Farnfield to Fairfield. Oh. Oh. I should have, re- I should have uh, double-checked. I should have read through, but blow me down, I didn't. So it went in, and it's been the book has been produced saying Fairfield. So I take every opportunity to tell people it's Farnfield. Um, yeah, so it 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 played well on board. In fact, when I left, oh no, that's what I was going to say. So the other commander, Commander uh, Roger Bridgman, he liked it so much. He said, "Hey, Andy, will you make me one?" So I made him one. Sadly, when the boat the the game was about to come out, I thought I really must get in touch with. Uh, Commander Bridgman to let him know and actually to give him a copy and I, I found that he died um, so he never came to see that but um, 
Yeah, I made him one. I think I charged him the Prince's Summer five quid for the bits and pieces of my time. So that'll be out there somewhere, or not, possibly. And, and when I left Sovereign in preparation to go on Perisher, I left that copy of the game on board. Now, Sovereign continued in commission. I think she paid off in 2006. That could be completely wrong. But anyway, when she paid off, that does sound a bit long, actually. But when she paid off, I don't know what happened to my game. So that original was called Submarine. It wasn't exactly the same, but it was 90% there. Yeah, so that's going to be out there somewhere. Huh. Interesting little artifact that might show up someday. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody will show up at your door. I have Submarine. <laughs> yeah. Um, and th- and then so when it came to um, having it published, uh, there's a bit of a, a gap here. Um, when I went on Perisher, I had other things on my mind, so I didn't do anything with the game. But I'd left Sovereign, and I don't, didn't have my game anymore uh, because I'd left it there. So I went off and did Perisher. And when I then went ashore to the operations in the concrete bunker, I thought, okay, well, in my spare time, here's an opportunity to uh, make another version. And it was almost identical, except I changed the cont- uh, the shape of the areas of different depth on the board. And I decided to introduce the logistic fleet. I don't know why I didn't do it in the first part uh, version, but um, yeah, it just occurred to me to make it realistic. They should have the opportunity. They, the surface navy, should have the opportunity to replenish. In the original game, all I did was uh, they had uh, eight cubes which represented fuel, and eight cubes which re- represented salvos. And at the start of the game, the setup, they dotted those around as they wished at the different islands. And uh, that's how, and they went in. That's how they got their fuel and, and weapons. Oh, so they couldn't refuel at sea or anything like that. They'd have to pull into port and then go about their business. Yeah, and once the the cube had been used, it was out of the game. So they oh. had a, they had a rapidly depleting resource that eventually completely ran out. Uh, whereas, as you guys will know, in the, the the game proper, the published game, if they look after their their bases and particularly uh, ice station echo they can just keep replenishing and uh, turning the fuel and the, the salvos around yeah so th- that was in uh, when was that 81 something like that I did this other copy and then I went out to uh, Australia and I took it out there and uh, bored my officers with that generally it was only if we were at anchor it wasn't something you could get out on the table and play if you were underway so if you were at anchor somewhere we'd do it and then back to the UK, and it just sort of moved along, and I took it to sea in the Polaris boat, Revenge, and it was played there, and that was fine. But then when I left the Navy, it sort of went to the side, and I was thinking of other things. And it was only a, a chance encounter. I live in a lovely village in Oxfordshire in the, the UK, and out walking our border collie, Floss, and I met this guy who I bump into with his dog, and he's, he just sort of said, oh, I've got this thing uh, being produced commercially um, and it was some gizmo for the medical industry and I came away from that conversation thinking oh it'd be really good to have something that you've put together invented and you know it's out there for people to know about and it was then that I thought oh you idiot you've got submarines sitting there in the cupboard and by this stage I was retired and I thought right let's dig it out had a look at it thought well hey yeah okay it's it's fine but it needs a bit of uh, polishing because in the interim i'd played a few more games one in particular which influenced the game is forbidden desert matt leacock's game which i enjoy and i 
having played a game of that, I thought, wow, if ever a game needed a weather element, you know, st- the effect of uh, the environment, it's my game. So I went away and came up with the, the weather mechanic for the game. Yeah, so I'd had uh, more things to think about, polished it up a bit. And then I thought, well, let's see if I can... I'd always wondered if it had any commercial... commercial um, Merit? Sorry? Merit? Commercial That's merit? That's what I'll do. As, you, as I think you and the listeners will hear, <laughs> I was stuck for a word there. Thank you. That's all right. I've been there. And uh, I then thought, let's have a look on the internet. Now, back in the day, when I had my original game, I did think, hey, I wonder if this has got commercial merit back then. But there was no internet. You know, How would you go about it? I really don't, so that's why it never happened then. And probably a good thing, because it, it would probably have failed then. Um, anyway, so I found out that there's the UK Games Expo, got in touch with the people there. They said, well, there's a playtest zone. That's what you need to do, bring it along. Well, I thought, well, okay, I've got five months, I think it was something like that, to get ready for the UK Games Expo. I've tweaked it a bit, and I put out an invite around the village. Hey, guys, anybody want to play a board game and help me get it ready? And four people came forward, and I brought them round, sat them at the uh, dining table, fed them drink and uh, nibbles, and they played, and I watched, and... uh, it was interesting. During that, there was one, and I thought, what are you doing? And the the surface team just said, one of them announced, he said, right, they've got to get four of our six ice stations. We'll sit back and protect three at the, at the far end of the board. We'll just sit back. And I thought, no, no, you can't do that. We, it, <laughs> it had never been played like that in all the years that it's been around. Nobody had ever done that. I think, well, because we were gung-ho Samaritans and, you know, you gung-ho Samaritans go off and do things. You don't sit around just waiting like that. And so I then thought, well, I need to do something about that. And I brought in this the link between Echo and the other stations, the fact that if, if Alpha is lost, then that will have an impact on the production or the recycling of uh, stores at Echo. And so if that's lost, anything that's ashore at, the, at Echo is out of the game because it can no longer be reprocessed because they haven't got the the chemicals. I can't remember which alpha is chemicals for the the weapons. So that that defend three strategy ended up working in that in that play test is what you're saying. Uh, well, I I told them at the time, no, <laughs> you're not doing that. <laughs> but I then but I then went away and thought, well, I can't have somebody else. Well, I can't take it to a publisher, and the publisher says, tell you what, we'll sit back and defend three. So that's why I came up with that uh, solution, and that sorted it. So that shows the benefit of playtesting because, you know, that was uh, – it had played fine until that point. Right. Everybody's minds are working different, and somebody will see some, oh, we can exploit this this area right here. And so that's no, good to get – you know, you've had international people, you know, testing the game to get all these different perspectives. Uh, it's very useful. Yeah. Well, it, it was a valid tactic, but a really boring one from the point of view of a game because the, <laughs> right. the, sub, the submarines would, would never win. And I then went off to the UK Games Expo to the playtest zone. And what I think is fantastic, the, the circle of life or the you know, small world, whatever you want to do, I set the game out on, my, on the Sunday morning. Uh, incidentally, on the, on the Saturday, I went for two days, and I thought on the Saturday 
I'll go along to the playtest zone just to see what it's like. I'm, I'll play a few other games for the other designers who are doing it. Thinking, you know, I can't just turn up and just do mine. It's a bit of give and take. And everybody's game that I played on the Saturday said, oh, okay, I've got one. I'm, I'm here tomorrow. Are you here? No. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> they didn't have the same ethic uh, as I did. Um, anyway, so there was on the Sunday, and I set the, board, the game up. And you then sort of, having done that, sat back waiting for punters to, to come have a look. And there was a guy at the table next to me uh, setting something up, and I didn't recognise him. I should have. I didn't recognise him. But I thought, well, it, while we're here, I'll just say hi and blow me down. It was Matt Leacock with a game that I can't remember which one it was. Is it Roll Through the Ages? Is that one of his? Anyway, he had a game that he was playtesting. Actually, I don't think I had the wit at the time, apart from saying, oh, I really like Forbidden Desert. I didn't say, and you influenced my game. But there we are. Um, and then out of that, um, when my game had finished uh, a play test, uh, okay. I got the, good marks. Uh, Sorry, yeah, go on. Uh, to bring everyone up to speed, I had to, I had to look this up. Uh, he is a superstar in the uh, board game world. Matt Leacock uh, made Pandemic, which is a very popular game, as well as uh, Forbidden Island and Forbidden Desert. So you were, you were with some uh, board gaming royalty, is what you're saying. Yes, and thank you for that, because I was, I was looking at your faces there and thinking... Have I got the name wrong? Because it's it's not sort of uh, it's not created a buzz at the other end of the call. <laughs> yeah. So yes, absolutely. He's uh, he's quite a well-known name in uh, the board game uh, area. Yeah. So there we go. I I got a good r- review from the guy who played the game, and as I was leaving, I was handed a business card that had been left with the play test people, and it was for Duncan Malloy at uh, Osprey Games. And again, blow me down. I looked at the address, and uh, they're in, in a offices near Oxford, just outside Oxford. And I'm 15 miles from their their offices, so you know what are the chances? Right place, right time. So when I got back, I zoomed back home, uh, contacted uh, by email, and said, "Hello, Duncan. My name is Andy Benford. Um, I've been given your card." I've got this game. And he said, great, send over the rules. So I duly sent him the, the rules, which at that point were 42 pages because I like to be uh, detailed. It didn't take long, maybe a day. He came back and said, great, thanks for sending them over. It, it looks a bit too uh, complex for what we're after, so we'll, we'll pass on this occasion. So I thought, oh, after that, um, okay. So I said, well, thanks for that, but... Um, I wonder if you'd be kind enough to let me know of other companies who think other publishers who might be interested in my game. He said, okay, this was, I'll say, by email. Yeah, give me a day or two. And then I thought, right, having done that, I really need to reduce my rule book from 42 pages to something more consumable. And I got it down to 27 by using much many more diagrams. And I still hadn't heard anything back from Duncan. So I thought, right, I'm not going to wait. Um, and I sent him an email with the, the the new rule book, and I said, "I'm not chasing you, but I was." <laughs> um, um, and I said, "This is the rule book that I wished I'd had when you'd asked to see it." And he said, "Well, okay, thanks. I've been thinking about your game. I'd really like to play it. Can you bring it in?" Took it in. He loved it. I left it with them. Uh, this was in July 2014. And I'd been to the expo in May 2014, and I'd started the process of finding out about the playtest zone in December 2013. And then 
in early 2015, I got an email saying, congratulations, it's going to be published. And uh, one of their first two board games, because this was the fir- their first move. They do war games, war game rules and stuff, but this is The the King is Dead um, was one, and uh, they come and see the other. And in August of uh, 2015, he... Phone, phoned me up I think and said uh, hey come on in we've we've got the first copies through and I went and picked up my first copy and that's the one I was holding in the photograph I sent you guys and that's sort of it yeah that's really cool how good did it feel to get that uh, that message that that game was being selected to be published after all those years that had to be an amazing feeling well it was amazing yeah absolutely and on cloud nine really and but I, I just sort of thought how how lucky, you know, everything just sort of fell into place. If I hadn't met this the friend walking around the village with his dog and he hadn't decided to tell me about his invention, I probably would have forgotten my game. Well, not completely forgotten, but it wouldn't have had that catalyst to do anything about it. Mm-hmm. Had, I, had I not been retired, I wouldn't have the, the opportunity to uh, possibly to put time and effort into it. Also, if I hadn't been in a, a small community where you know everybody, I may not have found the playtesters I wanted. And then actually to arrive at a playtest zone when Osprey Games were actually looking for their first games and Osprey Games, as I said, 15 miles down the road so I could go down and just say, here it is. You know, all those things <laughs> fell into place. So just very, very fortunate. And it just gives me a buzz now because... Um, I'm I'm active on Board Game Geek. I mean, the, the the questions have died down now, as it's it's what four years since it came out, something like that. But certainly in the early days, people were saying, "Hey, what do we do about this? What do we do about that?" I've put together the website that you've seen. If I can promote that now, www.theycomeunseen.com, and I've called it a companion website, and it, it basically allows me to expand on the rule book, which is limited to so many pages, and uh, with those photographs background just to help uh, people get the most out of the game and you also have that the supplement to the rules the little it's just the one page document basically helps detail out the movement limitations and all that with the weather because as you even mentioned in the rule book you know when you're first learning this game because there's a learning curve with it um, do not factor the weather in and i think that supplement really helps out yeah, well well good good um yeah the the weather it, it, I think I hope you found it's a pretty well balanced game. Okay, somebody has to lose, but in my experience, it generally comes a bit down to the wire. Either the submarines just manage it, but they're on their beam ends; they're they're on the verge of being sunk, or the, the Soviets blast them out. But it, you know, it's just close. They're, the Soviets are just running out of fuel, but they just manage to to sink the the second submarine. So it's pretty well balanced, but um, the weather just adds a difficult, a difference, or not difficult, a different layer of tactics because it does give the submarines the opportunity to hide if the weather is rough enough and there's a, a, a thermal layer, and so the Soviets can do their search, and yes, they can be in the search area, but because they're below the layer, they don't have to say contact. They just say, no, no, nothing there. Which is nice because... Um in my initial playthrough, I was on the submarine team, and uh, <laughs> it feels like it feels like when you're on the sub, 
And especially when you're in that water depth of 250 where you're limited to six squares of movement, you feel like, oh my gosh, these uh, these Soviets, they can move all over the place. You're like, I, I really got to think about what I'm doing right now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's why I put, put those shallow areas in there just to, well, to, to hopefully add the balance. If you're, it, it, that, I suppose, is one area of luck. If the four cards you draw out the six give you um, Delta and Foxtrot as two of them, then it's going to be a harder game than if, you, if, if you've only got one of those or if you've got neither of them. So there, there right. is an element there. But it's, yeah, so each game can be very different um, in that respect. I also just ought to add, mention, because people have heard me say that it started off life as submarine. When it came to, uh, I was thinking of taking it up to the games expo, I thought, well... In fact, I looked on Board Game Geek, and if you type in submarine, quite a lot of games come up. I thought, well, I, you know, I want something to be unique. And I sat there thinking, what's, I can't remember what things I came up with. But actually, it didn't take very long I, because uh, I, I decided to use the, the Royal Naval uh, Submarine Service motto and just change it. The motto is, we come on the scene. And I thought, well, no, I can't use the motto verbatim. I didn't feel comfortable doing that. So I just changed it to they, and I think that uh, that works well. It does, and it uh, you know it gives you uh, something that you're looking at, and it really catches your eye because you're like, oh, mm-hmm. what is this? And the artwork on the box is incredible, everything. And like I mentioned before, everything, when you open this box up and you start pulling the stuff out, it's got some heft to it, and it has a really premium, nice feel to it. I was I was pleasantly surprised. It's... It's a really uh, well-made game. Yeah, I was very lucky um, picking up with, with Osprey Games. I think if you look at, um, I don't know how familiar you are with their expanding portfolio board games, but they're, they're all up there for uh, quality of components. And actually, I'll give them a plug as well, because occasionally things go wrong in production. You get something that's the print is slightly out of, sp- out of line or the cards are the wrong color if there are cards and things. And... Uh, they're an ace company. If you've got a problem with a game and you on board Game Geek or just contact the company through the internet and say, hey, I've got a problem with this, they're right on it and they'll send you out the, the bits and pieces. So um, I must give a, a shout out to, uh, to Osprey Games and, and particularly Duncan Malloy, who has moved on from there now. He's doing other things. But without him, you know, having the faith, although, yeah, admittedly, he, <laughs> he waved me away the first time, but at least he had the good... <laughs> A good grace to reconsider his uh, his thoughts, and uh, it came out, and it, it's it's a it's a thrill. Yeah, well, congratulations on that, and on the the success of it uh, to this point, and it, it really sounds great. I might have to get a copy for myself now. I usually am the guy uh, the guy that lets my friends buy the board games because uh, I've got some collectors in my circle of friends. And uh, saves me a little money that way if uh, they get the games and I, I get to reap all the rewards. But this might be one I have to bring to the table. Yeah, well, I think you'll, you'll find there's some pretty good offers around. Um, essentially, in your questions, you mentioned, uh, you said, so while playing, we ran into something we were a bit confused on. Oh, true. Yes. Yeah. So while we were snorting, actually, during this uh, conversation, I found out we were doing something incorrectly. Uh, we were not announcing or really making ourselves known where we were every time we were snorting. So, But don't worry, the Soviets found us anyway. It didn't matter. <laughs> uh, 
uh, but something we know now for next time. But so I think we also kind of looked this up online, but I just wanted some clarification. When we snorted, because there's three depths you can go at, you can go to 200 feet, 400 feet, 600 feet, yep. depending on where you're at on the board. And when we snorted, we had to go to periscope depth. And we said, okay, we're periscope depth. Can we stay here? Could we, could we just stay here? Because there's not an option for the Soviets when they're firing their mortars to just have them blow up essentially on the surface. Uh, and so we would, when they fire their mortars, if they give you a direct hit, you take a whole damage token. And if you get a near miss, um, you're okay. But if you get two near misses, it counts as a direct hit. But essentially, I, I don't think we're supposed to, uh, but I just... Am I right in that we're not supposed to stay at periscope yeah, you, depth? Yeah, correct? that's that's a bit more sort of uh, here we come rather than they come unseen, isn't it? <laughs> True. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um. It, in the the rule book at, at the t- um, uh, Osprey games talk about surface level, mm-hmm. and at the time I th- I was I was thinking, oh, come on, it's not surface level. You're either on the surface or at periscope depth, and but actually. They were right. I was viewing it as, as a submariner, using the terms I'm used to, and they, was, they were just approaching it as a board game. So surface level applies to the main board. So gotcha. if, you're, if, if you're at periscope depth, you appear on the, pa- the main board, or the datum piece does, and you move it a couple and then you disappear again. Yeah, you could stay up there, but you'd then be rammed because any of the ships, right. any of the ships can ram you, and you'd be dead and gone. And, uh, yeah, no, don't do it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Well, that makes sense then. So every time we snort then, we need to put a, a datum token on where we were or, or put our boat on the main map for a minute and then move it back to the deep board. Yeah. Um, you can do either of those. I think it's better to, to leave the submarine piece on the deep board, move, Move it one on the deep on the deep board, so you're moving forward. That's the change of depth up, change of depth gauge. But then put the datum piece where you're going to arrive on the main board. Then move okay. the da- move the datum piece, leave it on the deep board, sort of catch up with the uh, the piece, and then move your three away. But yes, you you can you can take the the piece the the submarine piece up onto the main board, move it along. Um, but yeah, so the the Soviets do get to know every time you snort. And that, okay. gives, that gives them a, a chance to sort of relocate if they've completely lost it. Um, but they, you, as you know, you can, and they were limited to moving a maximum of three away from the datum piece. But that does right. enable you to, depending on how well they place their search template, to, to get yourself out of that, or maybe directly underneath the destroyer, if you can predict where he's, he or she's going to place it. And then if you're playing the weather, of course, and you, you're canny, then you you manage to do a snort in storm level five because you can't snort in storm level six. And then you disappear down and you go to a depth that's going to be below the, the thermal air and they can't detect you. So that's, yeah. Yeah, that's, okay. That, that makes more sense now. Although I was playing against uh, one of our hosts. He's, uh, he's a very intelligent guy and... Uh, <laughs> To go to head to head with him was like, oh my gosh, man, this is <laughs> he's he's got a lot of experience and a lot of brains. So 
I was trying to outwit him, and that that didn't really uh, work out too great for myself. I just got a few fun questions here, and I think there might be a few of the other hosts that we might want to interject some other questions as well. But uh, I think an important one that we like to ask a lot of the the people we interview: Do you have a favorite submarine film? Uh, yeah, yes, but I have many favorites. Okay. <laughs> hey, we've we've watched a lot, so we want to know. Well. Th- I need to explain that. The problem is, if you watch a submarine film as a submariner, you're going to view it in a different way. And so I can accept that. because Some of the films are just outrageous, but I enjoy it just because <laughs> it's, it's fun. But, but it, you just can't stop being sort of nitpicking because you think, no, you wouldn't yeah. do that. You can't do that. No, that doesn't work. And things like um, just... <laughs> An example I'll use. In the, in the Royal Navy submarine service, you never say the word close. So you don't close a valve. You don't close a hatch. Everything is shut because shut is a very clear term. Um, so shut the intermediate flood drain valve. Close the intermediate, you know, t- did he say blow? That's sort of the, the reason. So every- Right. And when you said clothes, I immediately started to think like what you actually wear, your apparel. Oh, there you are. Exactly so there, right. Yeah. It, it, it is not a clear word, whereas shut is. So if I see a submarine film, they go around saying, oh, close that, we're doing this. I think, no, 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 come on. You-. So it is rather nitpicky. But, but, and also in the submarine service, if you give an order, what you do, if I use the intermediate flood drain valve, which is a valve, incidentally, that's part of the snort induction system, um, but I'll use that as an example. As officer watch, I would say to the panel watch keeper, shut the intermediate flood drain valve. He would report back to me, shut the intermediate flood drain valve. So I know he's heard what I said. He'd then go off to the after end of the control room. He'd do his job. He'd come back and he'd say, intermediate flood intermediate flood drain valve shut to which i'd say roger intermediate flood drain valve shut he knows that i've heard him i know that mm-hmm. he's heard me he's done what i want so if if you see if i see a film they go shut the intermediate flood drain valve roger yeah done roger you know that, that just annoys me but that's the sort of nitpicky so when it comes to my favorites you know i heard your uh, review of um, morning departure Mm. one of the the films that was made during the Second World War. And they tend to be, from a terminology point of view, pretty on the on the money. Um, incidentally, I think one of you mentioned about, and he sort of came at him with a claw-like, do you remember that? that um, a claw-like implement. Maybe it was uh, Jamie oh, or somebody else. Anyway, and he was saying, what, what on earth was that? It was a wheel spanner. What is what does that serve spanner. as? You're looking you're looking blank. Uh, well, a wheel spanner is is designed to put on the hand wheel of a valve to lock onto uh. it, so so you can nip or unnip a valve. And it's called a, oh. a a wheel spanner, and it looks a bit like a hook. And somebody said, oh, and he he sort of was waving something like a hook at the guy. Oh, I remember because typically in all the movies we see. Um, for whatever reason, I mean, I imagine they're just everywhere on submarines. Everywhere, people are always wielding wrenches. If you're going to attack somebody, it's with a wrench. Okay, so that's when we saw this. We're like, wait, that's not a wrench. What are we looking at right now? Okay, well, that's a wheel spanner. Um, okay, yeah, I'm paid attention. 
yeah, morning departure above us the waves. You dive at dawn. They're all sort of World War Two type ones, and they're they're pretty on the money. One of the ones I really enjoy is Operation Petticoat. I don't know if you know that one with Cary Grant oh, yeah. and Tony Curtis. Um, we reviewed that one. Okay, it, it's a fun film. I just enjoy it as a, a fun film. So that's mm-hmm. a favourite submarine film. You wouldn't say it's a great, but it's just a favourite. But then you come to other ones, Down Periscope with uh, Kelsey Grammer. That's got some pretty good stuff in it. You know, it's it's on the money in some areas. Mm-hmm. We've actually heard from many of the people we've spoken with uh, that have served on submarines that that is the most accurate portrayal of life on a sub. Yeah. Do you kind of agree with that to some degree? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That and uh, Das Boot, if you want to go to the conventional yeah. side. I suppose ultimately my favorite is Das Boot. That is our favorite as well. It is. Something else. That's a great film. And that's, I mean, it was even worse in those days for those poor guys. They spent an awful lot of time on the surface uh, because they didn't have the, the snort or the snorkel system. Um, so it was, it was a rough time. But that's, that's very realistic. And then you get uh, Hunt for October. Okay, there's some silly stuff in that, but I enjoyed it as a film. Crimson Tide. They, filmmakers sort of like to... You've always got a stroppy executive officer, haven't you? Either that or a stroppy captain. I've, I've never come across either, but there we are. But it, it makes a good movie. And, and more recently, Hunter Killer. Now, I know a lot of Samana's panned it. I enjoyed it for what it was. There mm-hmm. were a lot of inaccuracies. Although I also have to recognize, you know, it's about 25 years plus since I was last on board a, a boat, and technology moves on. So there may well be things that, uh, uh, bits of kit that exist now that I didn't know about. But but some of it's a bit uh, far-fetched and silly. And again, you get a, a stroppy executive officer who's always uh, countermanding the captain's ideas. Um, but I enjoyed it as a, a film. So... If 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 you put me on the spot and said, what's your favourite movie? It's Das Boot. But I've got, as I say, lots of favourites for different reasons. Yeah, so there you go. All right, I think that's, I mean, the common consensus for a lot of us is Das Boot is the one. I think that's the best one we've seen so far. But again, like you mentioned with some of the other ones, uh, Crimson Tide in particular, you probably never had... I can't imagine people have had a lot of disagreements with their XOs and captains like you see in that movie. And I don't know, maybe in your time as commander, do you ever have to squash a mutiny or anything like that? <laughs> no, 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 not at all. I'm, uh, I was an XO of a Polaris boat, so I've been in, in that situation on patrol. Um, well, when I say that situation, I didn't have a, a mad captain. Um, but, <laughs> yeah, no, I, yeah, I can't see it happening. But, of course, normal life doesn't make good films. So, true, true. Yeah. Some of the other stuff we uh, were wondering is uh, with the with the map you've got laid out. Um, there's all the different strategic elements. Have you thought about any expansions to the board game, like potentially maybe a different map with different depths and locations of ice stations, or perhaps a different area entirely? Maybe like a bottleneck uh, that could get a little get a little wild with the strategy of the subs but yeah i i have put together um an expansion it actually uses the same board it introduces a few additional pieces and a different mission uh but the the basic mechanics are still there uh osprey games do have that but whether it'll ever come to anything i really don't know 
I hope it may, but um, yeah. So having having done this, it did sort of uh, spark the uh, the brain a bit, and thinking, okay, what more could you do with it? So I have been through that process and uh, come up with something. Yeah. Okay. Very cool. Looking forward to it, and I hope that they put that in the production. That'd be great. Alex, the mustard man, one of our co-hosts, wants to uh, know uh, contemporary day. Uh, wh- do you have any favorite board games? Do you have um, game nights or anything like that where you play uh, board games with friends or anything like that? Uh, sadly not. Um, I mean, I don't play my own game as much as I'd like. Um, but fav- favorite board games, <laughs> they come unseen, of course, is up there. Um but I do like, as I said, uh, Forbidden Desert. Um, what else have I got recently? I used to buy a board game every Christmas just to annoy the family. Um, <laughs> no, no. Uh, I'm, I'm, we've got two daughters, and I think they've they've sort of uh, inherited the the board game uh, mm-hmm. gene. They quite quite enjoy them. Um, but I'm desperate now. This is silly. Oh, uh, well, I suppose again. <laughs> Again, like my answer, I'm afraid to films. Do I have a favourite? No, but I have, I have games that I enjoy. When I, uh, in my youth, the only games I played was, as I said earlier, and then moving on from there, the only games I ever sort of came across were ones that you saw in a department store. You know, not a game store, just in a department store. So they were always the sort of run-of-the-mill games, the ones that are spawned from a television series or something sure. they, they were the sort or the trivial pursuits of this world you know that that sort sure. of thing and then at some point and i don't know how it was but i've i discovered board game geek and i was looking back i actually joined board game geek in 2006 but i think i may have used it for a bit before i decided to sign up and the days of wonder games i discovered at that point and so I got Pirate Cove, the the Abbey. What's the Ticket to Ride? I think don't they do that one? No, uh, yeah, I've I've never played Ticket to Ride. It it, it doesn't appeal to me. I, I've never played it. So, um, mm-hmm. but I say it's not one that I think. Oh yes, I'll pick that up. But um, yeah, is it Mystery of the Abbey? The Abbey. Uh, I'm trying to think of the other. I've got a, got a few of the the Days of Wonder. So I enjoyed those. Red November. Don't know if you've come across that one. That's a little submarine game. It's a sort of cooperative game. You're on board a submarine that's just falling apart around you, and you have to to get out of it. That's quite good fun. But uh, yeah, no particular favourites. But I, as I said earlier, I've I've matured, so I will play a game, <laughs> and, if, and if I don't win, it doesn't matter. I just enjoy the process of playing a game. You mentioned uh, if you're going through the stores of a, of a supermarket, you will uh, you'll find a bunch of the classic games that have always been on the shelves for fifty to a hundred years. You know, one of those would be Battleship, obviously a <laughs> much much more dumbed down uh, version of what I would assume uh, nautical combat is like. But that was made into a movie. So my question for you is: uh, if they come unseen was made into a film, who would you like to see star in it? Wow. Uh, blimey. Um, well, I suppose the, the, <laughs> the, the obvious person who doesn't come to, who comes to mind who you think maybe not is Gerard Butler because he's been, he's, he seems to be in every action movie there is, there is out there. 
who would I want as the male lead? Kyle, I mentioned, uh, I saw you had to step away for a moment there. I asked if he, uh, if we had to cast They Come Unseen as a, as a movie, because Battleship was made into a movie. Right. Uh, he's, he's working with Gerard Butler, might be the lead in the film. I don't know if there's any support with your, with your play testing who you might want to add in there. No, my, I, I said that Gerard Butler immediately springs to mind because he's been mm-hmm. in so many action movies recently. Angel Down, yes. whatever it's called, and um, Hunter Killer, but maybe not because he's he's too. He's he he tends to play himself, and he's he's always in them. Here you go, Benedict Cumberbatch. <laughs> oh, perfect! Is he a sub captain? Yeah, I think he he could uh, he could carry that off nicely, and probably Hugh Grant. I'm 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 being biased here with uh, British actors, but I could see a, a Hugh Grant character doing quite well. That'd be really good. Well, I mean, hey, you've got to have them for the NATO forces. I'm trying to think who you could have for the for the Soviets. <laughs> would be good in there. <laughs> the go-to is always Dolph Lundgren. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Dolph Lundgren, I could see as the uh, Soviet, but you, you even know who Dolph Lundgren is. No, we only know him because no. we've seen him in so Sorry. many of these movies. <laughs> Uh, if you watch the Rocky movies, he was um, uh, Ivan Drago, the main Russian bad guy. I, I saw the very first Rocky, and uh, that was enough. I'm not not into to boxing. Yeah. Was. I was thinking actually of the, of the guy who played the the Soviet submarine captain and hunter killer, but sadly he he passed away shortly after the film. Oh, that's right, Michael Nyquist, oh. right? That's that's it. Yeah. yeah, I think he he'd be excellent. Well, he he was in that, so he'd be an ideal yes. one. Yeah. All right. You have any other questions, Kyle? Uh, I don't think so. I think uh, this has been great. I've had a great time chatting with you, talking about this game. Uh, if people have not played this game, pick it up. We're going to put links to it uh, on, on our Twitter, on our all our social media, everything like that. Uh, buy this game, support this man. Let's get him to get some expansions made, everything. I mean, come on, guys. Get out there and get it. It's... It's fun. When I had it at game night, I'm granted Jamie and I are pretty deep into sub stuff, but we had two people there who had not, I mean, they don't watch sub movies like we do or anything like that. And they had a blast playing it just because of the mind games that were going on the entire time. They're like, okay, I think they moved over there, but where could they be? We're not picking them up on sonar. And just to sit there and try to watch them figure out where in God's earth we were was very fun. Good. Yeah. Um, Brom, do you have any more questions? No, I think uh, I think we're good. We, we've kept you a little over an hour already and uh, had a blast. It flew by. So I, I really appreciate the, the opportunity to get to speak with you and get a little insight on both sub, submarining and uh, board game design. Uh, very interesting insights and takes on things. So thank you very much, Commander. Okay. Well, thank you both. Um, I've enjoyed it uh, hugely. And... Uh Thank you as well for that uh, fine plug for the game. They come unseen, guys. Yep. That's if that if that expansion ever drops, we'll have you back on, get you some more exposure <laughs> on it. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. All right. Take care, sir. Okay. Bye, guys. Thanks for listening to Submersion. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Don't forget to subscribe for new episodes every Thursday. 
If you like what you heard, please leave us a rating on iTunes. 